Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. And Karen Koch-Tusman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, the latest on the impact the Ukraine crisis is having on the biopharma ecosystem. A big data milestone from Gilead and our monthly translational feature, What's on Tap in the Distillery with Karen. The sponsor for this episode of BioCentury this week is Jato Capital. Jato is a global leading investment company with a patient benefit driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. JATO supports entrepreneurs through its expert, integrated, multi-talented team and through significant capital. For more information, visit JATO.life, that's J-E-I-T-O dot life, or follow the firm on Twitter at JATO underscore life or via their LinkedIn profile. Biopharma industry members have come out to vocally support Ukraine. They're continuing to sign on to a letter released early last week pledging economic disengagement from Russia. As of Friday, the letter supporting Ukraine's sovereignty and condemning the Russian invasion, the majority, nearly 450 people, Listed in affiliation with a biopharma company, the bulk of the remainder, nearly 200, were from VCs, asset managers, or other financiers. Now, we had a guest comment from a VC last week that I'd like to start with on today's pod uh, for BioCapital's Dima Kuzman. He called for economically disengaging from Russia but doing so thoughtfully. Simone, can you unpack what he said in this guest comment? Yes, thanks, Jeff. So we have been talking to Dima and to some other people engaged with the Russian and Ukrainian communities. Dima is in London, and he, as you pointed out, he is a managing partner at 4BioCapital. Um, and, you know, it, we spoke with him about this. And I, I have to point out, he is an expat Russian. He, to some degree, has some personal risk even in publishing this. The message he wanted to convey is a very strong anti-Putin message, pro-disengagement, meaning he he agrees with the need to place sanctions and, and not invest in Russia and Russian entities, but he says, don't lump all Russians into this embargo. Um, you have to do this thoughtfully, he says. And the point he makes is that there's a lot of what he calls ethnic Russians who are actually very against the regime and have no ties and can get sort of swept up in this fervor. So he outlines four areas where he says you should disengage. He says, first, don't take investment from oligarchs. And he has some messages, you know, do you see your LP or investor anywhere near the top 50 of the Russian Forbes list? And says, you know, do your diligence. If they're not a verified global entrepreneur entrepreneur or financier, just walk away. Said second, don't invest in Russia. Um, Do not feed the beast, he says. 
Third, he says, do not engage with state actors. He says that is an area that is largely covered by sanctions, but for a long time, the VC community has concealed its LP base. So you don't really know who the LPs are. The fourth point he makes, which is a big, really message for him, is don't turn it into an ethnic witch hunt. Rejecting all ethnic Russians is not only wrong, he says, but actually counterproductive. Because if you isolate them, then what he argues is you create a, a grounds for Putin to um, address people feeling alienated in the West or ex-Russians feeling alienated in the West. And he feels this very deeply. So I think it really is important that people think through and understand what they're doing on many levels in how they should um, wield their influence. It's very easy to sign a letter, but you have to put some thought into it. And you also have to be able to take a, you know, a chunk of pain for it to be meaningful. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Simone. I've been in touch with people in both Ukraine and, and Russia over the last week. One of the things that's impressed me from Russia is another letter that I'm going to mention in a story that we'll publish today from VCs who live in Russia and Belarus. And they say they can't remain silent about the tragedy, about the suffering, about the destruction. They call for a ceasefire. They call for tech and venture community around the world to take action, including donating funds to humanitarian organizations that are providing assistance to the afflicted in Ukraine in particular. The letter is artfully worded because the people who, people who are living in Russia and Ukraine are at are great risk. For example, if they use the word war in a message like this, they could go to jail for um, seven years. If they're um, accused of organizing a, a protest, they could go to jail for, for 15 years. Even though they've avoided those, those words, I, I think it's notable that they've done this. It, it does put them at, at, at great risk. The other thing I, I think that's uh, important to note are VCs who are in the United States and Europe who do have connections to the Russian government, who have connection to Russian oligarchs, what they're saying, what they're doing. I wrote a story last week that mentioned one fund, uh, Apple Tree Partners, and noted that it's been widely reported that they received most of their funds from a particular Russian who's an oligarch who's listed in the U.S. Treasury Department list of um, Russian oligarchs. And uh, when I asked them about that last week, they refused to even to confirm it or to um, discuss it in any way. By the end of the week, they issued a statement acknowledging that this oligarch has been their uh, primary source of funds and stating that uh, he's been outside of Russia for a decade and has nothing to do with Russian entities and that uh, he's been that he has nothing to do with Russian entities or Russian political affairs. I think that people who do business with, with Apple Tree are, are going to have to look at this and um, come to their own conclusions. Another Russian who lives in the United States, Nikolai Savchuk, he has been very active in serving as a kind of bridge between the U.S. biopharma community and Russian life sciences companies, particularly service companies. He's been on the boards of a number of companies in the United States and a number of companies and entities in um, Russia. He put out a statement condemning the, the invasion, calling for peace, saying that he's personally going to donate funds. And one of the companies that he's on the board of is going to donate funds uh, to help people who are caught up in the war. Yeah, I think we really have to acknowledge and respect that a lot of these people are speaking out at considerable personal risk. Even those in the expat community realize they may never be able to go back to Russia again and so on. And so, you know, very much respecting that. 
One other thing, I, I had a very an interesting conversation with with FPA. That's the trade association that represents European pharmaceutical companies and European uh, pharmaceutical trade associations. Last week, on their website, they list right now it's twenty companies. I'm sure the number will grow that are providing assistance to Ukraine. They're providing financial assistance and medicines, both to people in Ukraine, but also to the almost million and a half people who've been forced out of Ukraine so far. And they said that that's really very challenging. It's challenging to know where they are, what their needs are, and how to help them. One data point there, for example, there was an entire pediatric cancer ward in Ukraine that was evacuated to Poland. There's a big scramble to try to to help those kids, to translate their documents into, um, into different languages and figure out what medicines they need. There are concerns about uh, having all these people who are crowded together, many of whom have had their normal vaccination routines disrupted by COVID-19 already. So there's a kind of an instant and, and enormous humanitarian disaster that requires humanitarian help. And the pharmaceutical industry is kind of at the at the heart of some of the more important efforts to help them. Yeah, that's um, very important work. It's, um, God, just to think of that, it's, it's hard enough uh, battling cancer as a kid and then to have to become a refugee at the same time. Um, here's hoping they can get their care and medicine that they need. Well, as Western governments are ramping up their sanctions and we have all these calls to disengage from Russia, uh, biotech VC funds may find it's not so simple to disentangle themselves from Russian LPs. Stephen, you looked at this last week. Why is this the case? Thanks, Jeff. So I had the chance to speak to six VCs, which were all off the record, given the sensitivities around you know these sorts of conversations, in particular when you're talking about LPs. And one of the main takeaways was the thinking is that there is a lot of Russian capital around. You know, obviously it will vary. Some will have a large amount, some will have smallest, but there's a lot of capital there. So that just then raised the question for us: if you're looking to disengage from from the Russian economy and from Russian capital, how do you go about doing that? I actually also spoke with three VC heads uh, in the United States. Uh, they also said that there's a lot of Russian money out there. When I asked them how do they think about going about getting that money out of their funds if they want to, they all kind of threw their hands up and said, you know, it's extraordinarily difficult. What, what did you hear? Yeah, so the, there are several, if you can call them options. Um, the best one that, that people were offering was is that you would just literally approach them and ask them to voluntarily withdraw, basically look to sell their stake in a secondary sale. The advantage there is that if you do that, then you're bringing in a new investor that fills the void that they're leaving. And so you can kind of then go on with your investments and it doesn't really change any of your planning going forward. The other option is that in particular, if, if they are subject or their banks that they operate with are subject to sanctions, you can do an immediate capital call and if they are unable to meet that capital call by defaulting, that essentially makes them have to give up their rights. And so that can get them out. But it's still, you know, one, one VC said that still is, will be a long, arduous legal process to have them removed from the fund. And then you're also potentially left with a hole in, in your fund. So depending on how large that LP is, 
you know, that could impact your sort of future investments and, and allocations. Um, and then the third option is, you, you know, some of them said that these are meant to be ironclad, right? The idea is you don't want, in the same way that a VC wouldn't want LP to be able to walk away, an LP wouldn't want a VC to be able to just kick them out whenever they wanted. And so funds may just have to ride this out until they get to their next fund and then decide just to not include them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear that it's difficult for VCs and that in some cases it may turn out financially unadvantageous for them, but that's the whole point of sanctions, right? It's got to hurt a bit, otherwise, uh, you know, you didn't, <laughs> it doesn't have to hurt a bit, but if it, if it hurts a bit, that's the price you pay because you're doing something that you actually believe is the right thing to yeah. do. Um, one thing, and one thing just to add is, you know, in all of these conversations, I did ask as well, you know, if, if some of these VCs had money in and most of them said, no, they don't have any, any of that investment. One VC said, you know, we're already taking on enough risk through the biology that we're investing in. So, uh, Although to be, be to be fair, to be fair, Stephen, probably the ones who spoke to you are going to be the ones least likely to have investments. It is one of those things, as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of money, Russian money out there. Mm-hmm. So some it's yep. in somebody's fund. That's the, true. the other thing I, I bring up is that all of this is very urgent and it's all very urgent to us. And it's very urgent to the people who are speaking with. But this isn't something that's going to go away. I think that the world changed forever for the rest of our lives on February the 24th. And there's going to be time to make this play out. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, Simone, Steve, Stephen, uh, our ongoing coverage of the Ukraine crisis can be found at biocentury.com. And as Steve said, this isn't going away. So we will be continuing to follow this. Let's turn to the clinic. Stephen, there's been a lot of noise this morning around Gilead's Tropics 02 data for Trodelvi and breast cancer. Uh, Trodelvi, of course, is the therapy Gilead gained in its $21 billion deal to acquire Immunomedics in October 2020. What's the fuss all about, Stephen? Why is my Twitter account not? working anymore because of all the chatter. Sure. Well, the fuss is because obviously, as you mentioned, this was the largest acquisition that Gilead had for a single asset in which the the main indication that they'd shown positive data for, triple negative breast cancer, it was good data, but it was by no means the biggest commercial opportunity there. And as several bystanders have told me over the past three to six months, the Tropics 2 data has to be not only positive, but has to be potentially best in class for Tordelvi to really meet the expectations that I think investors had for the $21 billion price tag that Gilead paid. And so at this point, you know, they announced that it met the primary endpoint of PFS. There was a positive trend on overall survival. They're going to be doing another interim read of their overall survival. So I think it's a little too early to call whether it's met that benchmark that investors were expecting or not. But it seems underwhelming on the face of it because they put out a a little questions guide with it in which they essentially wouldn't outright say that the data was clinically meaningful at this point. So it's just I think it's raised some eyebrows in terms of maybe being underwhelming when they were already trying to downplay a little bit how good the data were potentially going to be. 
All right. So it's it's more a case of what what's not been said than what what was said so far. So that's right. And, you know, when you stack it up against if you go back 10 years when they bought from assets for eleven billion dollars and obviously the cash cow that the HTV franchise turned into, or if you even look at the pharmacyclics acquisition, which was granted $21 billion for only basically half of the global rights that Avi paid, but it still got them, you know, a drug that is now a multi, multi-billion dollar drug and doing quite well. So I think people have, you know, expectations that kind of fall something closer to that than the run rate that Tordelvi is on right now. Excellent. Well, we'll uh, look out for the next bite of data here. Let's go a bit earlier and see what's on tap in the distillery. Karen. Thanks, Jeff. Well, uh, we have our latest crop of distillery items out, and these are all available at biocentry.com slash distillery or from the button on our website. And basically a couple I thought were interesting to highlight. Um, I'm always interested in, in compounds that are explicitly disrupting interactions between two targets to achieve a therapeutic effect. And there were two papers that caught my eye that did this. One from Paolo Fiorina's lab at Harvard Medical School, where they were going after the interaction between an apoptosis-inducing receptor, TMEM219, and IGF-BP3, a growth factor that regulates beta cell mass. And this was to promote the growth of beta cells for type 1 and type 2 diabetes by preserving the function of, of pancreas cells. So that was pretty interesting. And another one from Taku Okazaki's lab at University of Tokyo, what they were doing is apparently PDL1 and CD80 interact on the surfaces of T cells. And so CD80 is a co-stimulatory molecule that promotes uh, T cell activation. PDL1 is an inhibitory one. And apparently CD80 kind of gets up in PDL1's grill and prevents it from binding PD1, thereby suppressing suppression. And so they developed a molecule that inhibited that interaction between those two molecules on the cell surface to allow PD-1 and PDL one to interact. And they showed disease-modifying effects in rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and Sjogren's syndrome. Uh, beyond our distillery and our weekly translation in brief, I thought uh, my colleague Danielle Galvin captured a really interesting trio of papers that each get at basically uh, platform technologies that enable you to kill cancer cells while sparing normal cells. And in two of those, it was going after the fact that cancer cells have something abnormal, in one case with their splicing. So that was the sort of avenue into killing them and not the normal cells. In another case, through uh, insertions and deletions that happened in cancer cells, and a third was actually, and this, this came from A2 Biotherapeutics, they have this not logic gate for their T-cell therapies where they kill a tumor cell by, they detect the absence of HLA molecules. So HLA present antigens, tumors try to be sneaky and downregulate it to hide from the immune system. And this therapy detects that loss and kills tumor cells that way. So all of that and more is available at biocentry.com slash distillery. And uh, yeah, never a dull day in translational science. Yeah, it's uh, the coverage is very cool. And I'm just so relieved that now you can just say slash distillery. 
Um, it's the little you've, things. You've, you've done a lot of great stuff, Karen, to make all this content a lot more visible to our readers. So uh, I invite everybody to jump in and check it out. Also on biocentury.com, you'll find this morning's story from our colleague Paul Bonanos about Kerma's new fund. Paul spoke with the firm about its plans to become the European anchor, as it put it, in expansion funding rounds for biotechs with the firm's new 160 million euro growth fund. And I spoke with Perceptive CIO Adam Stone about how the firm is navigating the downturn. So we'll have that story for you this week. Plus, we'll have a new episode of the BioCentury Show. We launched the BioCentury Show earlier this year. It's a 30-minute in-depth conversation with some of the most prominent leaders in life sciences. Simone, who's on deck this week? So I will be speaking with Otello Stampakia, more broadly known as Otello in the industry, kind of like Madonna, one of these people who just goes by his first name, you know, he'll like, he'll, I think he'll like the uh, comparison there. He, of course, is the VC, founder, managing partner of Omega Funds, and also just actually kind of a big commentator in the industry. So very much looking forward to talking to him about what's going on in the capital markets, what's going on with Ukraine, and a little bit of projection from him on uh, hot topics that he thinks we really ought to be thinking about. Great. And we'll have that for you on Thursday. Our first three conversations are ready for viewing. Uh, we kicked the show off with a discussion with Scott Gottlieb, obviously the former FDA commissioner. John Euler joined us. He's the CEO of China-based global biotech Beijing. And our most recent show featured ICER's Steve Pearson. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs> 